This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. I am up to my eyes in Christmas right now, which is great. Just today, I got an email from Delmark Records, a blues label, hyping the Christmas albums in their catalog. And I now want to spend more time with Jim Galloway and Jay McShann's Jim and Jay's Christmas from 1992. I checked out their version of Silent Night, and it sounds like it belongs in a film noir. And like someone's going to go down in a hail of bullets at the hands of the coppers 10 seconds after this song ends. Now I need to know what else is there. I'm also trying to process the new Mariah Carey Christmas song and the beautiful Jesus Maria from New Orleans pedal steel virtuoso Dave Easley. Carla Blay wrote Jesus Maria for her beautiful Carla's Christmas Carols album and Easley does it justice on his new album By Ways of the Moon which is available now on Bandcamp. This week's episode is one I've been looking forward to. Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Mannheim Steamroller, and the Brian Setzer Orchestra are the big three in the Monsters of Christmas Rock. And so far, I've only been able to interview members of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Today, I talked to another of the big three, Chip Davis of Mannheim Steamroller. I think this conversation and Mannheim Steamroller are really interesting for a number of reasons. The project genuinely comes from an idiosyncratic place. It doesn't quite come out of a classical or a rock and roll tradition. Davis made his own way from the start and blazed his own trail. He also, in the process, found his own audience. Because Mannheim Steamroller made its mark in 1984 with Christmas, its first Christmas album, the same year as Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas and Wham's Last Christmas. But because it lives in its own world, with its own audience, it's never mentioned in the same conversation. When we talk, I focus a lot on the electronic element because for me, that's the most interesting part of Mannheim Steamroller music and the place where, in my mind, Davis stood apart from what anyone else was doing in the market. Still, you can tell from Davis' answers that he doesn't see his output in quite the same way. I was also fascinated in this interview, as an interviewer, by the sureness with which Chip Davis answers questions. He doesn't meander through answers or search for an endpoint to a thought. He says what he has to say, and that's that. It made for an unusual interview experience, since I'm often waiting to see where someone's going with a thought and how they're going to land it. We'll get to that shortly. But first, Alexander Scott is back to join me to talk about a couple of Australian Christmas songs, which exist in a very different cultural space, as we'll discuss in a few minutes. Today, we're chewing on Paul Kelly's How to Make Gravy and Tim Minchin's White Wine in the Sun. Then, we'll be back with Chip Davis of Mannheim Steamroller on 12 Songs of Christmas. So today is Australia Day, Alexandra. It is, mate. <laughs> I am not going to do an accent. No, me neither. I'm not even sure that was Australian. So, Sorry, it's Australia. Okay. But we there were a couple of songs I want we wanted to play. One, and it's just matter of like last week offline, you told me I should listen to Tim Minchin's White Wine in the Sun. Tim Minchin, an Australian uh, 
actor, comedian, singer, musician. And while you pitched that one to me, I'm like, well, while we're talking Australians, do you know how to make gravy by Paul Kelly? And so you, we had swaps because I did not know mention and you didn't know how to make gravy. So I don't know how to make gravy because I'm a vegetarian. Ah, 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 so, so at multiple <laughs> levels, it works. But it seemed like one, and then once I heard the two together, it also seemed like these actually merit being talked about in the same, in the same conversation and not just because they're from the same place. But anyway, we'll get into all this. Let's start off with Paul Kelly. And Paul Kelly is an Australian singer, sort of, I would say in here, he would be Americana. So I guess he's Australiana or something like that. Um, and he released a song, How to Make Gravy, in 1996. And it has become one of the one of the best-loved Australian Christmas songs. So I am told by Australians. Uh, and so... Sort of like the fairy tale of New York of Australian Christmas songs, do you think? Let's talk about that. Let's hear the song first so people can join us in the conversation. So, all okay. right. This is How to Make Gravy by Paul Kelly. Hello, Dan. It's Joe here. I hope you're keeping well. It's the 21st of December. Now they're ringing the last bell. If I get good behavior, I'll be out of here by July. Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day? Please don't let them cry for me. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland And Stella's flying in from the coast the first thing we notice is it doesn't sound like a Christmas song. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. And hearing the excerpt that I just played for you just nods at it. Uh, this is the song of a guy basically writing a letter home from, uh, from prison to the family celebrating on uh, Christmas Day. And so... Without him. Without him, exactly. So it touches into the sort of quintessential... Christmas theme, which is longing and absence, that that's yes. white Christmas, that's uh, I'll be home for Christmas, uh, that's a million Christmas songs. Blue Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but it doesn't sound like any of them, not a big surprise. Uh, what did you do with it? I think this is a great song. I, I really enjoy this, and I really encourage people to go home and listen to it because it's because you do need to hear it at like it's full four and a half minutes to make sense. It's true. I, I enjoyed the, I, I'm trying not to swear, even though I know I can, I just enjoyed it a lot um, because it's so different. And it does remind me of fairy tale of New York. It doesn't sound alike, but it has that same sort of, I'm a fuck up and 
I'm, I've got sort of sadness in my heart, but I also have hope in my heart and I have love in my heart. I just, that, that's a very poignant um, recipe. Yeah. And I have to say, and I, and I love Paul Kelly as the voice of it because he has such a sort of raw voice that this isn't like a lot of songs we are listening to and a lot of the, the Christmas classics and just a lot of classic songs. We're listening to a lot of beautiful voices trying to articulate sort of messy lives and people whose voices are not messy. In this mm. case, when Paul Kelly sings as a guy doing time, he is credible as a guy doing time. It's just, true. Just the voice itself sounds like that could be that guy. The beauty of it is clearly in the writing, that he writes such a beautifully commonplace language that you don't hear lines in there that sound like he has twisted everyday speech into something fancier or or he's even twisted it to make it fit a rhyme and rhythm scheme. It all lands and it, it all works, but you don't hear the writing. It sounds like you could write this out as a letter and it would be a believable letter. Mm -hmm. And I think um, doing that, making it so um, everyday, actually make is what makes it magical he's not depending on the lights and bells and snow i mean i get I, it doesn't snow in australia at christmas time but the lights and bells and sunshine and, and the, the christmas tropes he's subtly and very effectively making the point that the magic of christmas for those who feel the magic of christmas is in being with your family in the kitchen and making food and being around the ones you love. And sometimes it's shambolic, but it's a, it's a time that is precious. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much about, and, and it focuses in beautifully on the routines and the rituals or traditions that make these moments special like it's somebody's job to make the gravy you know yeah. when you you that those of us who are meat eaters like we know who makes the turkey and right. it's like and this person makes the turkey and there's a very good chance their turkey is not markedly better than ones that five other people who are going to dinner at that time would make but it has been their gig and it will be their gig and everybody remembers the time that the turkey was, you know, stayed in too long and we all ate it politely because she was so proud, or he was so proud of that turkey, even though it didn't work. And everything's got, you know, all these things all have little stories attached to them. And that is part of what gives holidays texture. And that's part of what gives them resonance is you almost always experience, you will experience this Christmas coming up and while we're doing it, we'll think about how it's like Christmases before, how it's different from Christmases before. And it's not conscious. It's just, it's a way we think. And it's a part of how 
it's how we, you know, how we live all, you know, we live in moments and that moment you're always thinking about or tangentially aware of how it relates to the moments before it. And you do, you experience Christmas conscious of the Christmases that came before. It's true. And it's, it's one of the reasons that holidays are so hard for many people. And I will say, um, for listeners who have conflicted feelings about Christmas, I I was the person in our family who always was like the most rah-rah about Christmas. And now um, I no longer spend holidays with my family. Um, and so I, I like songs that are from an outsider's point of view, because I still, I still love that the beauty of that season, but I look at it quite differently. Um, and that longing for it and re- just seeing it from outside as opposed to from inside, uh, it, it's just an interesting shift in perspective. Sure. Yeah, I get that. I bet that I would bet that part of the appeal to this song is that it appeals both to those who are in somehow and both to those who feel out somehow. Sure. It, it captures both. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That it is that it, I think like I first found out about the song with people talking about it in the same breath as Robert Earl Keane's Merry Christmas from the Family, which is one of those songs that people who love Christmas love and that people who think Christmas is a joke love. And I don't know that so, song. I'll have oh, to listen. Yes, you will. This is that song that on one hand, if you want the all the Christmas feels, they're there. If you on the other but also if you feel the distance, the sadness, that's very much there too. And so it, it kind of works on works both ways. Yeah, all of them, it's also there. Yeah, exactly right, yeah. The one thing it doesn't do is give you winter because Christmas comes in summertime in uh, Australia, Southern Hemisphere. I think that's that's good for those of us on this side of the equator to remember because we, you know, we tend to forget that there's a whole other world. Yeah. Not a whole other world, a whole other side of the world, you know? Yeah. It, it's interesting. I, I So far, I've talked on the show a number of times to people from other countries, generally European countries, though. And so talking about how they experience Christmas and what Christmas music is in, uh, in other countries. And some of the Christmas classics, like White Christmas, kind of exists everywhere. But a lot of it doesn't. A lot of it doesn't cross cultures. And... Uh, and certainly in this case, almost the entire American Christmas canon makes no sense <laughs> in Australia because all of the fetishizing of winter and snow has no place in Christmas. So that's pretty cool. That uh, is really, I mean, as our, as America increasingly, I'm sorry, as the U.S. increasingly becomes kind of demoted it's it's really funny to think that our christmas music is useless outside our country i love that idea also that now i'm going to pick it up that that uh you know in in, uh british uh premier league soccer 
they talk about relegation where certain teams at the end are at the end of a season are sent down if they didn't perform well enough and the possibility that America is up for relegation strikes me as, a, as an entertaining way to think about that. Thought. <laughs> it's funny because I, I was thinking about, I'm not going to spoiler anything here, the Christmas episode from Ted Lasso where the British man asks the um, very young, I, I can't remember his country, I, it's not Rwanda, but he's from an African country. He says, what does Christmas make you think of? And the African soccer player says colonialism. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to that. uh, It's like I was looking here. I can't. I'm just quickly Googled uh, Australian Christmas songs. And of course, almost there is now Winter Wonderland by Olivia Newton-John. But Olivia Newton-John is Australian. Uh, Yes. And goddess. Holly, uh, Holly Jolly Christmas by Michael Buble. That strikes me as funny. But otherwise, most of what's here, an Aussie Christmas Carol by Auntie Donna. I love that. I, I had to go check these songs out now. This is now an area I, know, I don't know enough about. Um, in an upcoming episode, I will be talking to Peter Zaremba from The Flesh Tones. And in it, The Flesh Tones covered Rolf Harris's Six White Boomers. And so he and I will get into a conversation about more Australian Christmas music uh, in, in that one. But I um, want to move on now to another one we mentioned. This is Tim Minchin's White Wine in the Sun. And Minchin, as I said, is an Australian actor, comedian, singer. And this is, I'm trying to remember the year of this. Do I have it? Um, I think 2009, if if I've got the, if I'm reading this right. And um, you introduced me to this, to Alexandra. So do you want to help set it up at all? Or do you want me to come to you after we talk about it? Oh, I can give you a brief setup. Okay. Uh, First of all, Josh Paxton introduced me to this. Ah, Um, New Orleans piano player. Uh Uh-huh. Piano player and genius. Um, He, he, uh, we wanted to perform it together back when we were doing a lot of duo shows. And um, I hope someday we'll get the chance to, because I just think this is a great, weird song um, with a very slant wise approach to Christmas. Um, and um, I don't know. Do you want to add more than that? I think we'll go there. So this okay. is White Wine in the Sun by Tim Minchin. Looking forward to Christmas It's sentimental, I know But I just really like it I am hardly religious I'd rather break bread with Dawkins than Desmond Tutu, to be honest And yes, I have all of the usual objections to consumerism To the commercialization of an ancient religion To the westernization of a dead Palestinian press ganged into selling playstations and beer But I still really like it Thank you for turning me on to that one that I'd never, I oh, hadn't heard it. it. And 
it, it's so on the edge of so many things I don't like. But the fact that he steers in, ultimately steers into the sentimentality while being clever as hell gets there for me. Uh, I, go ahead. No, no, I was just agreeing with yeah. you. So, like, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I tend to be uh, suspicious of Christmas music that wants to be uh clever wants to be too clever and wants to like i'm too smart for all this christmas stuff and there's a lot of i'm too smart for all of this and then it all comes back to but i really like christmas i was like mm -hmm. yes okay that, that that we're we're uh we're getting somewhere here i think that's 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 that gets my that holds me um it is like i didn't know he was a comedian until I was reading after the fact. Um, and it 100% makes sense. Uh, partly, I mean, it, it is, it's often funny. He's enough of a musician to know that we're not just doing jokes here, that that won't, won't fly. Um, but there's a lot of cleverness. Uh, and there's moments where he's about to break his elbow, patting himself on the back for being so clever. But each time he never quite goes there, which is admirable that he which manages to. Oh, uh, there's all the ones where he's sort of breaking it, breaking down Christmas and like, I clearly see and understand what's really going on here and how this really is. And uh, here's and it's like, yeah, yeah, um, there is a ton of play acting and pretend connected to Christmas. But, but again, but he comes back and, and that he ultimately comes back to the same place that Paul Kelly does. In the end, it's about family. It's about community. It's about moments of sharing. And, and to some degree, and I think it's clearer in his version, his song than in Paul Kelly's, it's about your choice as the participant, your choice to participate your choice mm. to join Christmas and that it's not that it is this thing that just happens. It is d the decision to be a part of it. And I think that's kind of an interesting take and uh, an interesting th uh, thought to sort of to, to hone in on. Um, because, I mean, cause I've, I've often thought that, you know, for me, living in New Orleans, Chris and, uh, Christmas and Mardi Gras share a lot. One of which is that they are both participatory and that there's a level at which they're both games that we all choose to play. That Except if, we don't, we, I, we sh should remember that we don't all. Oh, okay. Sorry. It, sorry. If you're, if you're in it, you choose to be in it. Yeah. Um, and you know, Mardi Gras, from Mardi Gras, we all choose for two weeks to pretend that the floats are beautiful. They are that, beautiful, you monster. For two weeks, they're beautiful. Uh, in this, uh, and, you know, for two weeks, we pretend the beads are worth catching. Uh, and then, and there's a whole level at which we have, have kind of, of, of play. 
and that's part of the beauty of it and that we de- we all people define their own ways to participate and find their own ways to join the game and that how that you know you have people have their their routines we they go to always watch from this place and this is the thing they, they bring to eat every time and these are the people who all join them there and a whole series of activities that are all tied to this one central action, all this creativity and all this essentially this, this play. And I think that's really beautiful. I think a lot of that applies to Christmas as well. Um, but it's something you choose to be a part of. Um, I think, I think you must have a more relaxing family than a lot of families. And that's, I am very glad for you. Yes. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm just going to present a counterpoint. This is not a disagreement, but I think many people do not have that experience of Christmas. I think for many people, it's an obligation and super stressful and you have to be around people who like have really different political views or don't believe in vaccines, or maybe they didn't want you to come out of the closet or maybe the women have to do all the work and the men get to watch TV. Like there, there are issues like that. Sure. Um, I don't, I don't find that Minchin is patting himself on the back for cleverness. I, I just think it's a smart person being funny and acknowledging some of the problems with the holiday, which, right. and I like smart people being funny. And then I really like it when it connects to just pure love um because i'm a sap or a pisces you know or both (laughs) um and you know it makes sense that josh paxton would have loved does love this song because he's an extremely smart extremely funny person with an absolute heart of gold um he's probably dying inside somewhere knowing that i've just said that (laughs) (laughs) but it's true but I think the reason it's funny is that people think these things about, you know, the issues where the church having co-opted a pagan festival and yada, yada. And it's nice to hear that in a Christmas song. I, could, I can't think of another one that mentions it and, and that mentions, or that mentions the fact that despite all these things, for many of us, myself included, there's still something about the holiday that is tremendously appealing um, and makes my inner four to 11 to 19 year old, I don't know, (laughs) to 30 year old, just so happy. Your brothers and sisters, your aunts and your uncles, your grandparents, cousins, and me and your mom will be waiting for you in the sun, drinking white wine in the sun. Darling, whenever you come, we'll be waiting for you in the sun, drinking white wine. Waiting for you in the sun Waiting
12 Songs is sponsored by Car Floats. Reusable, removable fabric stickers for your car. Here in New Orleans, everybody has a costume box, if not closet. And Car Floats believes your car ought to be able to dress up or down according to the mood or season two. They have designs suitable for the upcoming holidays, but also ones that simply reflect your personal sense of style and whimsy. Tired of your CX-5 looking like everybody else's CX-5? Car floats can help. And when you're ready for something different, you can peel them back off, put them back on their paper backing, and save them until the next time you're ready to dress up your car. My daughter helped me put ghosts on my car for Halloween, and now that it's over, those stickers are back on their paper, rolled up, and stored until this time next year. Want to see what you can do for your car? Visit car-floats.com. Put 12 songs in the promo box, and that's the number 12 songs as one word, in the promo box at checkout for 25% off on your first purchase. Car Floats, art in motion. Mannheim Steamroller incorporated synthesizers and arena rock drums starting on that first Fresh Air album in 1975. What made you decide to approach classical music with those innovations? Well, I kind of wanted to uh, combine modern-day techniques, but with my classical background from going to the University of Michigan, I was very highly steeped in, in classical music. But I thought it would be interesting to incorporate more modern-day things, which would have been in the early 70s. And um, about then, the synthesizer had been invented, and I wanted to use synthetic sounds along with actual real orchestral instruments uh, drums, bass, uh, you know, and a combination of instruments. So uh, it was a way to try to mix in two different time frames. Did the cost of hiring musicians when you're a young, when you're a young, young artist, did that in part lead to the, uh, the featuring of the synthesizer? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, I, I just liked the sounds I could get out of my Mini Moog and the uh, ARP 2600 and things. I, I used them separately. I didn't try to c duplicate string sounds or horn sounds, anything like that. It was a completely different approach. So I, I kept the classical part classical and the uh, rock and roll part rock and roll. Was uh, Wendy Carlos's uh, switched on Bach? Yep. An influence at all? Absolutely. But when, when he was still Walter. <laughs> exactly. Tell me about, about, about being a young man and hearing that record, because now it's, it, it's you know, a sort of a record of myth and you know, a, a sort of a legend, and not only for what it was, but also, of course, you know, uh, Wendy Carlos's story. And tell me about, about hearing uh, Bach adapt, adapted to, to uh, synthesizers and to electronic uh, instruments. My original philosophy was, you know, don't change Bach or Mozart from what they actually are. But hearing Bach done like that with the precision that could be done with sequencers and everything, 
to be honest with you, it blew my mind. It made me want to try not to to do switched on Bach, but to do my own version of music using that technique. In 1984, you released your first Mannheim Steamroller Christmas uh, album. What made you decide to approach the Christmas canon? Well, uh, I always loved Christmas music. I grew up in a small town of 500 people in Ohio, and Christmas music was a very big part of the Methodist church. My grandmother was the organist there. My dad was the choir master. And so Christmas time was a very magical time, and uh, especially like candlelight services and things. So I decided that I wanted to take on some Christmas music and do some of it traditionally, and then some of it do my Mannheim thing to it, like Deck the Halls, for example. One thing I'm thinking about as you're telling me the story is I'm trying to imagine what kind of musical career did you did you were you looking at or were you trying to have at that point? Were you were you looking down sort of the rock music line and seeing this sort of a future? Were you looking at classical music? How did you see your future as a musician? I don't know that I really thought about it. To be honest, uh, I just liked doing what I was doing. And um, the uh, classical part, like I say, has been the underpinning of almost all my music. And I wanted to do something to bring that part up into more the 20th century at the time. Uh, I was a school teacher at that point when I got started being a composer. And uh, I'd been composing music since I was 11. But I, was, I graduated from Michigan in education, and I was teaching uh, general music in Ohio. So that was my early beginning. I was using my students as uh, guinea pigs to try these techniques on, and uh, to, it gave me something to focus on. They were my audience, my uh, ninth, uh, eighth and ninth grade students. See, this, part, this part interests me because you know, when I asked about the synthesizers and versus musicians, you know, I'm sure you know for a lot of musicians that the especially musicians at the start of their career – that a synthesizer was a way to do strings and not have to pay five people to come in and play string parts. And, you know, to some degree, the reality of what your life is ends up helping to shape artistic choices and, and musical choices. So at the point when you're doing this, when you're making like the, the those first Fresh Air albums, at that point, you're a... You're teaching, what, uh, junior high? Yes, and during Fresh Air 1. Okay. Were you playing these records live at all? Uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have it all worked out to be able to, complete, to play in a complete album live at that time. But we did do some little benefit concerts for some small colleges uh, in which we played like maybe half an album 
and uh, we'd sell the the uh, like a forty five of the two cuts that we played, and then we gave the money as a donation to the universities. Oh, that's cool. So, how long was it before Mannheim Steamroller became a a touring act? Well, I was doing. I would say probably around seventy five, seventy six. Uh, where we went out and played, you know, short versions of the concert. And then by 78, I had, I think I was doing Fresh Air 2. Now we had enough music to play even more. So we probably went more into full swing about 78, 79, around that time frame. How long was it before you, before you did a, uh, a nationwide tour? Hmm. You got me on that one. Uh, the first, the, the first thing we did was first, our first shot out of Omaha was to go play Salt Lake City because we had some really good hi-fi salespeople. You remember back in that era, we weren't selling through traditional record stores at the time. Uh, <clears throat> we had a certain amount of direct mail, uh, that we were selling through, but we were selling primarily through hi-fi stores in Salt Lake and Denver and Omaha. So, then those were the first cities I went out and tried to do concerts in. What size venues were you doing? Oh, two to 3,000. Some, wow. some smaller, too. You know, some, sure. like at the universities, they might be more like 500 to 700. But I would say, you know, as we really got rolling, uh, it was more like the Orpheum size, like 3,000 or so. Sure. You know, your career has been one that has sort of completely sidestepped sort of almost all conventional media, you know, kind of a, maybe because you have all, you've sort of occupied that in-between space that it was never exactly embraced by rock media. Uh, and so, you know, and, but it was, I was always curious, like how you, how you actually found your audience or how did your audience find you? Well, like I say, I think the, the hi-fi stores really gave us a good leg up because uh, for one thing, you know, we've always prided our albums on being technically very good and very accurate. The vinyl we used was really high-end Teldec vinyl from Germany. And, you know, we did everything first class. <clears throat> and I, the audience started hearing that in hi-fi stores. And then pretty soon they started buying it from the hi-fi stores, not just using it for demonstration. And that got our distribution started. Eventually, traditional sales venues started to pick up on it. And then we were selling albums in like the big box stores. How did the uh, first uh, Christmas album sell? The first Christmas album, when I put it out, uh, the distributors and a lot of the dealers said, Chip, don't do that. It'll be perceived incorrectly. A lot of times somebody does a Christmas album because they've run out of ideas or they're going to change record labels. So they're saving their good stuff for themselves. And I said, you know what? I don't care what you think. I'm going to do it anyway and sold 9 million copies. Wow. That's amazing. Did you, did you know that Deck the Halls was the right song 
to lead that album off? Yeah, I think so. Um, <clears throat> it it really showed off that combination of you know using the synthesizers, using the sequence, and uh, the that whole thing. Uh, but then in the bridge, when you go into the bridge, it's all. You know, the sequence is still going on, but then the acoustic instruments, the French horns, the strings, they all they take over in the bridge. And then the repeat of the first part is when they're all playing together. And it just felt like it was a powerful piece. And this also brings to mind what a Mannheim steamroller is, which is actually a crescendo from 1749 in Germany is when they invented the idea of adding and subtracting instruments to create a steamroller. It was Johann Stamitz was the guy. What were you going for? What in Deck the Halls said to you, make it this big, charging, bold, uh, bold statement? Felt like you're riding horses. Interesting. Which I do. <laughs> can, can you elaborate? Well, I just, you know, I know what it feels like to ride horses on my farm. And that has that, that it has that, da -da 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 -da, that kind of feeling to it. And um, right. you know, it 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 really feels like you're charging ahead, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up. You know, it's it's like horn calls and horses, and you know, it's cool, it's cool stuff that I I really like and enjoy on my farm. Right. What electronic artists influenced your thoughts about the specifics of the synthesizer, both how to incorporate it and ideas about how about how to utilize it emerson lake and palmer uh walter carlos uh, wendy carlos um i guess in that era in the 70s when some of those bands were out um i was a big fan of emerson lake and palmer too Had you heard either uh, Jean-Michel Jarre or, um, or Vangelis at the time? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Vangelis is, is a big, you know, on my music service, on my TV, a lot of his pieces still play. And I, I have always enjoyed, uh, you know, the, that theme from the, from the movie. Oh, it's a, <clears throat> he's, a, he's a tremendous artist. I have to say, I was thinking of those two when I was listening to your version of Good King Wenceslas. Oh, yeah? Huh. yeah. <clears throat> is it, it, it sounds like it's almost entirely on synthesizers. It uh, is. Am I right? It is, except for when we, the, when we sing the chorus <clears throat> the last time through it. And then it's just drums. It's just drums and a few bass hits, and then we're singing the actual melody. Thank you. 
are, what were the Christmas songs that made an impression on you growing up? Uh, my mom told me, who was a musician also, uh, by the way, I have to plug Michigan. She went to Michigan too. <laughs> <clears throat> my mom told me that I could hum Silent Night before I could actually talk. So apparently Silent wow. Night really stuck in my, you know, my mind. And so uh, in that first Christmas album, while I started with you know, this raucous version of Deck the Halls, I ended it very beautifully and quietly with Silent Night. Was your experience with Christmas music growing up primarily one of like listening to songs on the radio or was it the experience of playing it and singing it with family and friends? It was more personal. Um, I don't know that anybody was playing Christmas music on the radio back then. Um, I don't know what stations would be doing that. Maybe WJR in Detroit, but um, I'm, I'm not sure that I heard it on the radio as much as just family and friends and hearing it at church and those sort of things. So when you were, so I'm going to make sure. So, and this is what time window are we talking about? We're talking about the late fifties and fifties into the sixties. Oh, I'd say uh, in that time frame. no, we're talking about in the early fifties. Okay. I was born in 47. So I was about five years old when this was, I was starting to really take note of all this that was going on at the church and my grandmother teaching piano and my dad teaching music. And it started to stick then. When my dad did his first Christmas concert that I really remember, I was sitting with my grandparents in this small gymnasium in the town of 500 people. And it just it blew me away and it really it struck a hard chord in me. And uh, it made me want to write music like that. Oh, that's great. See, I find this really interesting because... Today, obviously, during the holiday season, Christmas music is almost omnipresent. Yeah, and uh, and so it's you know that that favorite songs and favorite versions are so a part of you know of conversation and how we deal with having the music always the music of Christmas always being around us. Yeah, and if I'm getting this right from you, what you're saying is that this was that at that point it was a specific and very special limited part of your, of your holiday. Is that right? Yes, it was just at Christmas time. You know, the, um, it really didn't play much before that. Uh, and like I say, it was, you know, Christmas music at the Methodist Church in my little town. Um, I don't think you really heard Christmas carols much on the radio. Maybe, uh, oh, Nat King Cole and some of the guys from that era were probably being played. Uh, Johnny Mathis, of course, but he was later, um, which we used him on, uh, by the way, he sang on my third Christmas album. What a joy it was to meet him. He was a really wonderful gentleman and ter tremendous singer.
think there was that much <clears throat> on the radio, maybe a few pieces here and there. But like I say, I was pretty young. I don't know that I was paying that close of attention to it. As you grew, that as you grew up, as you became, move into your teens and into your 20s, what was your attitude toward Christmas music at that point? Oh, anything to impress a anything to impress a girl. <laughs> so, at a, I guess the reason I ask is I remember a number of times I've had conversations with musicians uh, about Christmas music, and a number who were band leaders talked about, in some cases, it being a challenge to get people that they worked with to play Christmas music because, especially when I'm dealing with people who were in rock bands, many of them sort of said point blank, members of the band said, I didn't get into this to play Christmas music. And, uh, and so there's a point where I wonder, if, as you're thinking about music as a, you know, as a composer, that at the moment when you, it occurred to you, like, do something with Christmas, like, what your attitude toward Christmas music was. Was it simply another musical text for you to approach from kind of a Mannheim steamroller approach? Or did it have special resonances that you sort of wanted to explore? Uh, Christmas music has always meant a lot to me from my background from growing up. And I wanted to do do some of it traditionally. As you've heard on all my Christmas albums, I'll do some very traditional with traditional instruments, and then some I like to go out there on the edge a little more. So it's a, it's always been a very big fascination, and also to kind of mess around with the different genres and different ways of treating the different Christmas carols. You returned to Christmas music four years later for the Fresh Air Christmas. Yes. Why go back to Christmas music? Why not? I mean, it was very successful for me, so, you know, it was, it, it was something to do, and it also... Uh, it gave me, there were some Christmas carols left I hadn't done yet, but that's when I started writing some original Christmas carols. I thought, you know, I'm going to get in this game myself and not just arrange them. I'm going to write some. So I wrote the Christmas lullaby for my oldest daughter. What was the challenge in trying to write music for Christmas? Hmm. I don't know. I, I didn't really see it as a challenge. It was uh, just something that I wanted to do that fit the, the feeling of the genre of Christmas. your mind made that Fresh Air Christmas different from the Christmas album before it, aside from the original material? I'd have to go back and listen to it. We're talking about some a few years ago. <laughs> sure, sure. But I guess, but, but, but I guess to, re to sort of different way into that question, I guess what I was looking at is, in your mind, was did you feel like there was something left to do uh, or that you thought you had a way to do it better? Or is it simply, that was fun, that was successful, let's have a second go at it? 
I don't really know that I thought about it like that. Um, I just knew that there were Christmas carols left that I wanted to explore because I uh, went through and made a huge list of every Christmas carol, including some from Germany and also from Mexico. Los Pesos in El Rio from Mexico is one I wanted to do uh, to, to bring that flavor to the whole Christmas, uh, the Christmas music I was doing, as well as Kling, Glückchen, Kling, which I recorded with a children's choir in Germany, uh, and just to explore different the different attitudes and the different sounds of how other people treated Christmas. I'm not asking, obviously, for numbers, but how successful was Mannheim Steamroller at this point? Because to talk about going and recording a, a, a children's choir in Germany, that doesn't sound like an inexpensive activity. And to, and to hire the number of musicians necessary to make to make your sound, not only the synthesizers, but obviously strings and the uh, other acoustic instruments. This is not an insubstantial number of people who are involved in the performance. That's true. I, I, have, I have to point out a very supportive bank here in Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> <clears throat> who was willing to lend me the money to go do it. They trusted me enough to be able to go out and do some of these projects. So, uh, you know, then, then it expanded to the London Symphony and the various things I did there also. But yeah, this bank, Security National Bank here in Omaha, Nebraska, was very supportive of me and helping me keep the label funded. Oh, that's great. I, I love hearing a story like that because it's so rare, certainly these days, to hear a story about, about a bank signing on to an artistic, uh, an artistic activity like this. Absolutely. You, you said a moment ago that you were you went back to Fresh Air Christmas because you had some songs that you still wanted to do. Yes. Was there a Christmas song that was hard to find the right arrangement for? Hmm. I I don't know. You know, each I'd have to say that each song has certain characteristics, and that dictates how I arrange it, pretty much. And if I'm going to turn it into a steamroller or just have it be a nice strophic song, uh, it, it depends on, on the, the, the tune itself as to how I would treat it when I'm arranging it. Could you give me an example? Yeah, here's one. Carol of the Bells. I'm going to sing you the melody. That's a challenge to do something with that. So when my audience, I let my audience pick a lot of times by request the ones that I would do. When they pick that one, it's like, oh my gosh, thanks a lot. This is going to be a challenge because it's so repetitive. And how did you deal with that? Steamrolled it. I just, you know, started it. I started it with uh, just one bell, ding, 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 ding. Then I had a bell on the left channel, ding, 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 and just went back and forth. And then did some Mannheim, the crap out of it, you know, with like synthesizers, boom. And so, you know, then then it takes off and it really gets rolling.
when you when you make a record, do you think that there need to be a certain number that that do have the electronic presence and a certain number that need to have that need to have a more classical presentation? Yes. I try to balance it out and also in tempo, tempo and texture. You know, uh, some of it can be synthetic, like the deck the hall scenario, but it ends with Silent Night that's all acoustic. Um, the, the I've done a lot of Renaissance cuts also and played it on the actual original instruments to, to just to show off the texture and also to show off where Christmas music really came from because it, you know, it came, a lot of Christmas music came from Germany and, um, uh, there's a famous composer from that era named Johann Hermann Schein, who did probably wrote the very first Christmas piece. It wasn't necessarily a carol, but it was for a celebration for some king over in Germany. Did you know that, or did that did working on Christmas music start to cause you to investigate Christmas music and its origins more thoroughly? I was just doing it with, um, you know, I was doing it because I wanted to do it. So I had organized in my hometown you know, a small band of players that could play this music. And then we, I'd use my dad's high school choir to sing some of the parts. Were you, were you doing this in, in front of audiences? Well, the Christmas concert that my dad had at his high school, they would have heard it like that. How did you hear it? You don't even really want to know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yes. Actually, I really do. I'm really interested in that because I don't know. I, I, don't, I can't guess at what your answer is. Well, I like that combination of ancient and modern and mixing those two together. So the album can be made up of a cut of up-tempo stuff followed by a really sweet cut, followed by a very small ensemble cut, then followed by a great big up-tempo one. Contrast and balance is like one of the most famous techniques in music, actually. And I think Stravinsky wrote about that and uh, how important contrast and balance is. Have there been times where you, when you look back and think you, that you didn't get it right? Nope. I always cool. get it right. <laughs> you ever seen my sales numbers? <laughs> <laughs> so at, at what point did Christmas music become a large part of the Mannheim Steamroller identity? Probably in 70... I don't know. I don't know what year it was. I wasn't so sure how the Fresh Air audience was going to respond to the Christmas music, so I only did half a concert with Christmas. Did the first half with Fresh Air, and it's like, oh, everybody, oh, I know that. I know that song. I know those pieces. And then I did the second half of the concert with Christmas just to see how they would react to it. And um, it went over well, and I started incorporating these Renaissance cuts and different antics that we would do with it to make it really happy and jovial. And um, so, I, you know, it's in those very first concerts when I finally switched to, it's probably been in 84 and probably 85, around that time, that I was starting to incorporate the Christmas music in the actual live Fresh Air concert. So I want to make sure I got that. So, so b before... The uh, 84 and before the first Christmas album, you were already incorporating Christmas music into, uh, into the, uh, the live show. Uh, no, not yet. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Not until 84, 85, probably 85. Got it. Okay. All right. So at some point, I mean, you now have, 
I quit counting between live albums, new music, and uh, and uh, compilations. I think I counted at least fifteen Christmas albums. That's probably about right. That was there a point where you realized that when people thought about Mannheim Steamroller, that the first thing they thought of was Christmas. Yeah, I did. I finally I, I realized that, and I wasn't so sure I liked that. Because my original pieces, like on the Fresh Air albums, meant a lot to me. And, um, and, and that's actually what got the steamroller started. But then uh, Christmas just came in and steamrolled us anyway. <laughs> Took over the whole stage, you know, so to speak. But um, you know what? It was, a, it was a tremendous thing, and it caused us to expand quite a bit. We, our audience was getting so big, one band couldn't cover the whole United States. So we, I came up with a second band. And they're all playing exactly the same repertoire, the same concert, same staging, same lighting, but they were, we could hit two parts of the country at one time because the selling season for us to get out and perform, you know, pretty much ends around January 1st. How many people are in each band? Uh, I think about six. And then we have like a local live orchestra of about 15 to 20. At the point when, obviously, the point when you ha- are putting two two bands on the road, that this has now become a pretty substantial, uh, substantial project. And, and you're now at that point, you're now a, you know, you're now responsible for the, uh, for salaries for lots of people. I mean, cause, cause I know that, I know that they're traveling with, with, uh, you know, with crews yep. and with, uh, with roadies and et cetera. And and vehicles, you know, trucks and buses and all that. Yeah, and how did how did you deal with that? To to be someone who started out as a composer, as an arranger, as a musician, with an idea, and now you are no two ways around it. You're not only a businessman, but you're a businessman who's now responsible for a lot of paychecks. How did that? sit with you when it when when you made that recognition well it it didn't happen all at once <clears throat> um i'd started off with um you know just doing little steps at a time and it was a one truck show uh one bus or in some of it we flew some of the crew or the musicians uh so it it went a little at a time i mean i didn't feel the fear and the impact of it until it really got started getting really big and we were doing arena shows and it was a, about $100,000 a day to keep the shows on the road. Was that a tough, a tough moment to recognize here's how much money is suddenly at stake? The, um, the grub stake money that I needed to kick off a tour, that's, that scared me because I didn't know how the outcome of the tours were going to go. When did you stop touring? Uh, after I had a neck surgery and I lost the use of my right arm, that's been probably 15 years ago. Okay. Was it hard that year to not go on tour with the band? Yeah, it was. I tried playing my little recorder solos and I couldn't do it. My fingers wouldn't move fast enough in my right hand and I lost it. It was, it was tragic. And then I kind of just didn't want to do it anymore. What's your status now? Has it improved at all? The first, oh, yeah, some. You know, I still do physical therapy a couple times a week. Um, but 
I really wanted to play again, but without the use of a computer and keyboard and all these incredible virtual sounds that I can get, that's when I wrote um, uh, Exotic Spaces, which is the first album I tried to come back with after all of this had happened. And I'm very proud of that album, and uh, it, it came it came across really well with um, the combination of everything virtual. Um, it sounds it sounds really excellent. I'm happy of the, with the topics of, of each song too. What part of touring do you miss? Um, favorite cities that we would go to. Um, where we had played those cities enough times that we had local friends. And, you know, sometimes we'd stay a day extra just to go out and go have dinner with them. Uh, that part was really great that we got to know a lot of people across the country. What part don't you miss? I guess some of the crazy hours, you know, and as particularly at my age now, I mean, I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. But um, the crazy hours, when, when I was young, it was a piece of cake back when I was that age in my 20s and 30s. Um, but, you know, as I was getting older, uh, the stamina it takes to do one of those concerts, the most up-tempo piece I had was Angels We Have Heard on High, which was our encore. And, man, I needed that curtain to come down right at the last beat because I was shot. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So in your mind, so now... Looking back at from, you know, from the first Fresh Air project to now, what do you see as kind of the narrative arc of Mannheim Steamroller? You know, like what changes do you hear in the music and in your work? Well, best example I can give you is the exotic spaces, you know, what I've done with that. I have not written anything since then. And I don't necessarily plan to unless something pops into my mind and I get really uh, stimulated by some idea to go do something. But Exotic Spaces incorporates almost every, every kind of technique that I used in Fresh Air and, and even beyond. So if you're not planning to write, are, are you sort of in semi-retirement then or what, how do you see your activity right now? Well, I've got some other things going on. I have... Uh, I have a series of medical albums that um, we've got placed at places like Wake Forest and the Mayo Clinic and things. It's music for med meditation and also for healing. And so that's been kind of my heartthrob. That um, series of albums is called Ambiance. And uh, th they mimic the four seasons, uh, not the band, um, but the right. uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> or the hotel chain. And uh, so, yeah, the, it mimics that, and uh, it's that's kind of the um, the thing that we're we're putting out most. We have it in CD and some of it in DVD, but mostly the whole collection is on a box that we invented in house here, called an ATS. That's an ambient therapy system, and those are the boxes we have retrofitted into a lot of the hospital rooms where we're located. Oh wow! So, so you're 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 involved in the the technology of sound of sound delivery in addition to the compositions? Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I'm not guiding it necessarily, but I'm very involved with it. Um, trying to create, we're creating like a four channel algorithm, we call it, that uh, our recordings that I've made with four microphones, like either in my woods, we've made it uh, recordings at the ocean on the Pacific Northwest. 
Uh, we've recorded rivers, waterfalls, all different kinds of uh, things that then I can add a little music in, not much. It's more focused on nature and how nature communicates with us. Are you someone who has been, who, what's your relationship to ambient music and your is this something that's been meditative and therapeutic for you? Yeah, I used it after I had my hip replacement 15 or so years ago. I, I used it in my sunroom where I could be out and I could see the stars at night and I could see the sun come up. And then I, I was playing it in there by my hospital bed. Steamroller start this 2021 holiday season tour Tuesday, November 16th in Loveland, Colorado, and it will run through December 30th when it will wrap up in Dallas and San Diego. Thanks to Chip, Alexandra, and Car Floats, our sponsor. You can find all of them online, and you can find me on Facebook at 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm still giving away this year's listeners-only Christmas mix. Write me at Alex at MySpiltWithATMilk.com and I'll send you a copy free. I started this show to share the Christmas music that knocks me out and this is one way to do that and say thank you for your support. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe, follow, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. And if you're an Apple person, we won't look askance at a five-star review. All these things help others find out about 12 songs. Earlier in the show, I mentioned Dave Easley's version of Carla Bley's Jesus Maria from his album By Ways of the Moon. I'll put a link to his Bandcamp page in the show notes, and we'll go out with a little of that. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.